This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Thank you, Ben. Welcome to Global Tennessee. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, we're pleased to bring you our first conversation with a campaign 2020 candidate. I should remind you that the World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan organization, and we do not endorse any candidate, party, or political position. When we feature political candidates in our podcasts and speaker programs, it is to share their perspective and positions on the global questions that confront American foreign policymakers. Our conversations are focused on educating voters about candidates' positions on global issues so that you can make informed decisions on Election Day. We invite serious candidates seeking federal office to our podcast. Today, we'll talk with Mr. James Mackler, who has declared his candidacy for the United States Senate seat being vacated by Senator Lamar Alexander. Mackler is running as a Democrat. He was a candidate in the 2018 U.S. Senate race, but stepped aside when former Tennessee Governor Phil Bredesen declared his candidacy. Bredesen was defeated by Marsha Blackburn for the seat vacated by Senator Bob Corker. Mr. Mackler's website states that he is, quote, a former prosecutor and defense attorney, Army veteran and reservist, a husband and a father, and he wants to be a senator who truly serves all Tennessee families. You can find more details about Mr. Mackler and links to his campaign information in our podcast notes. And now, our interview with James Mackler, candidate for the United States Senate. Today on Global Tennessee, we are with James Mackler. He is a candidate for the Democrat nomination for the U.S. Senate in Tennessee uh, next year. Welcome, uh, uh, James, uh, to the Global Tennessee podcast. Hey, thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we're, we're going to uh, jump right in. We, we have a lot of uh, material to cover, but first we want to get uh, some information about your background. Tell us uh, where you were born and raised and uh, your education and... and uh, then we'll get into some Tennessee uh, service in, in the National Guard and your service in, in the Army in, uh, in Iraq. But give us a little background uh, of, of your uh, family upbringing. Sure, sure. I lived here in Nashville as a young child. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was fairly young, and so my dad moved to Chattanooga, where he's been a doctor for the past 40-some years. My mom actually moved with me and my brother to New York so that she could live with her parents as she got her feet back under her. She was obviously a young single mom at the time. She wound up uh, becoming a public school teacher in New York. We were living with my grandparents. My grandfather was a World War II veteran and a New York City police officer. And then I spent all my summers and vacations in Chattanooga with my dad, waiting tables, doing summer jobs, that, that kind of thing in Chattanooga. So I was really fortunate to grow up surrounded by people who really exemplified service, a teacher, doctor, you know, police officer. And that had a real impact on my views of service. And education, where did you go to school? I went to Duke undergraduate, was a public policy major, and uh, went to law school out at the University of Washington. Okay, and then military service. Well, my military career, uh, my service history is definitely a bit unusual. I was practicing law on 9-11, had a successful law practice going. And after the attacks of 9-11, I felt called to serve. I thought about my grandfather's generation and how they must have felt after Pearl Harbor. So I walked into an Army recruiting station and I said, I want to volunteer. The recruiter, who was definitely younger than me, said, absolutely, sir, we need more people in the JAG Corps. I had told him I was a lawyer. But there was a Black Hawk helicopter poster right above the, the recruiting desk, and I'm a sucker for that stuff. So I saw that poster. I said, no, no, I want to be in the fight. Send me to flight school. The recruiter told me I'd have to get an age waiver, so I earned an age waiver. I learned to fly Blackhawks. I joined the 101st Airborne Division and deployed to Iraq with the division in 2005. So tell us a little bit about your, your service in Iraq. What, uh, what were your duties? Well, as a, an assault helicopter pilot, my duties were primarily to conduct air assault missions, uh, which uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar with that's like, they can sort of think of a movie like Zero Dark Thirty where you... You load up the troops, land in the bad guy's backyard, usually at night. Uh, your troops will get off, do what they've got to do, jump back into the helicopter, and, and you bring everyone home. 
We did other sorts of missions, uh, missions known as battlefield circulation missions. Uh, I was there during the height of the IED threat. As much as 50% of everyone who went on the roads hit an IED during that time. So an important part of our mission when we, when we weren't engaging in air assault was simply to get troops from base to base safely and keep them off of the roads. So that was a, a year-long mission. I was based uh, in northern Iraq near Tikrit. I got back from Iraq and, to my surprise, missed the practice of law. We spent many, many, many long nights on missions where I'd be flying and a passenger or crew chief, another pilot, would say, hey, I heard you were a lawyer before. I have this quote-unquote friend with a problem. <laughs> and uh, they'd ask legal questions, and I missed some of that. I also saw that... In, in the Navy, we call that sea lawyers. Everybody was there you one. Go. Right. Well, I, or a barracks lawyer, or in this right. case, a helicopter cockpit lawyer. I also, though, took notice of the problems with military sexual assault. And having been an experienced attorney already, saw that as another place where I could serve. So I transferred to the JAG Corps and became an Army prosecutor, mostly prosecuting military sexual assaults. Mm hmm Let's step back uh, just a little bit. I noticed in uh, your record that you were decorated uh, for your service in Iraq uh, with mention of something related to audacious airmanship. <laughs> the citation for my air medal says, uh, for bold and audacious piloting in combat. And I like to think that that's a model for the Senate campaign as well. I intend to be a bold and audacious candidate and a bold and audacious senator. That's was the that way we get most things done. Uh, for sure. Was that a, a single event or was that for the duration of your service? The the Air Medal was for the duration of my service. Uh, I um, also received a Combat Action Badge, which was, was for a specific event. Do you care to go into that? No, I don't, I don't mind. Uh, we were um, at one of the FOBs. Drop, it was actually a Thanksgiving Day. We were bringing a colonel to visit troops and to serve Thanksgiving dinner. And my crew and I, with another crew, were spending some time on the landing pad outside waiting for the colonel to come back. We took some uh, incoming indirect fire that was very, very close, damaged some of the aircraft. We got back in the aircraft, uh, pursued the point of origin, you know, used our counter battery artillery uh, or counter artillery radar system, found the origin, pursued the origin, and, and that was the, the incident that led to that particular award. Well, thank you for, uh, for that service. Okay, so you're, you're uh, back in the practice of law. Tell us uh, what you've been doing uh, in, as an attorney in, in your legal practice. Sure. Well, I'm not, I'm not practicing law now. I'm full-time U.S. Senate candidate. But when you but came when back. when I came back. So I came back and had been out of the civilian practice of law for some time at that point and needed to find out a way to kind of break back into the civilian practice of law. I drew on my training, both my time uh, as an aviator and my time as a JAG, and saw an opportunity to develop a niche advising businesses and governments on the use of unmanned aircraft, drones. It was a growing field in the civilian world at that point. So I joined a, a large law firm and um, uh, just sort of started this brand new practice. And it, it really grew and expanded to the point where I could get to another, you know, a larger firm from there and was practicing law full time and eventually felt the need to serve again. And so um, that's why I'm running for the U.S. Senate. And uh, tell us a little bit about your family. You've got... Uh a full-size family? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just, I just realized I sort of skipped a step in my civilian practice. So I left uh, the Army, and my first job out of the Army was working for the Mine Safety and Health Administration on their Mine Safety Backlog Project. Uh, there, there was a period of time, still is, where uh, MSHA was falling behind on uh, safety citation compliances. What was happening is mining companies would violate mine safety rules, and instead of paying a fine, They'd simply contest the fine and create this backlog. If you fight every single ticket you get, it's impossible to keep up. Sure. So I joined a team of prosecutors to go after the mining companies that were putting profits ahead of people and spend some time litigating those cases because I believe that miners deserve justice and companies need to be held accountable. Sure. And I moved from that mine safety and health project to the drone law area. Okay. Okay, now tell us about your family. Sure. I've got two little girls. They're eight and nine years old. Uh, I'm married to an incredible woman who's my model of service. She's a member of the clergy, a rabbi, here in town. We actually met when I returned from Iraq. I'm Jewish, but hadn't really been practicing. My combat experience made me want to return to my community and to my faith, so I went to the temple shortly after I returned from Iraq. Shana was a new rabbi there. We met, we hit it off, and uh, I, I certainly reconnected with my faith. Terrific.
I uh, just want to remind our uh, listeners that uh, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast, and we're talking with Mr. James Mackler today. He's a candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for the U.S. Senate uh, next year, and uh, we've been talking about his military service and professional service as an attorney. Uh, now we're going to uh, ask him uh, probably the, the big question, why he's running, and then uh, later on we'll uh, take a tour of the world about uh, what his thoughts are on challenges to U.S. foreign policy uh, abroad. Uh, James, uh, why, why are you running? I'm running for the same reason that I joined the Army after 9-11. I feel like our country is in a time of crisis, and everyone who can serve needs to serve. We all need to do, do what we can. And when I say that, I mean in particular for Tennessee, we are bearing the brunt of many of the misguided policies in Washington. We're the epicenter of the negative impacts. Tennessee had already lost more rural hospitals per person than any other state in the nation, and we've just lost another hospital. The trade war is hurting our economy more than any other state. The opioid epidemic is going unchecked. And it's about time that folks in Washington you know, worked with one another to accomplish their mission and to make things better for the people of Tennessee. All right, and uh, we, we want to get a little bit into your, your thoughts on uh, the, the role of uh, the U.S. Senate in uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, we look to the, the Senate for certain things. What, what are your uh, impressions of the important roles that the Senate plays in, in U.S. foreign policy? You know, I take the perspective of someone who's been on the ground, who's seen the impact of our foreign policy choices directly. I saw what happened in Iraq when a country becomes so tribal and so divided and when the rule of law entirely breaks down. And I'm a lawyer by training. So the law and the Constitution are just extraordinarily important to me, uh, both in terms of how they shape our foreign policy and how they're affected by our foreign policy. And you know, one of the things that disappoints me a lot is that many people in the U.S. Senate either seem to no longer understand or care about the separation of powers or the role of Congress in uh, influencing and directing our foreign policy. And Mitch McConnell is, is probably the worst culprit in this regard. Uh, he's the Senate Majority Leader and uh, really defers to the president on almost anything that he chooses to do. And we have a president who conducts foreign policy by tweet and by whim, which isn't a good way to conduct foreign policy. Sure. And we, as, as senators, have the ability to put a check on that, but haven't. Now, specific uh, roles of, of the Senate, uh, probably the, the most important role is uh, declaring war. The, the Congress uh, is, off, is empowered by the Constitution to uh, declare war. We seem to be operating uh, continuously under the uh, authorization to, for use of military force. That was the post-9-11 authorization in Afghanistan to go after al-Qaeda. Uh, what, what are your feelings about uh, the AUMF being used in such a way and the role of the Congress in declaring war? It's, it's long past time to uh, take another look at the AUMF. Congress needs to have a real debate about the need for an AUMF, the extent, the role, the duration. Uh, this, as you mentioned, we're continuing to engage in extended combat operations under a document that was drafted in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. The world has changed. The operational parameters, the mission, are all different now. Uh, I believe that Congress would authorize the continued use of military force to fight these counterinsurgency operations, but they need to do so in a thoughtful way. And instead, as, as happens all too often, members of Congress prefer to be able to avoid accountability and simply continue operating the way we're operating. When things go well, they can try and claim credit. When things go badly, they can blame the president. And that's politically expedient, but it's not the way the democracy is supposed to work. Sure. As a senator, uh, what would you, what would your guidelines be for a vote to declare a war? We, we don't have uh, declarations of war in the typical sense that uh, back in the day, declaring war on Japan uh, after Pearl Harbor. Nowadays, there's a lot of ambiguity in whether the United States should use force or not, uh, where our interests are that uh, that require the U.S. to, uh, to engage with military force. Do you have uh, a sense of uh, what sorts of engagements would be a yes and which, which would be a no? It's, it's so hard to talk about that in a theoretical sense. Sure. It, it's... There's just so many possible permutations and ways that that question can come before us. But there, us. there are leaders, political leaders, who are, are known as uh, 
uh, hawks or doves, some some lean forward and some are more reserved. Where would you place well, yourself I think in the spectrum? I think I just avoid those sorts of labels to the extent that I can. As I said, I've I've seen the effects of war on our troops. I understand the need to use all of the instruments of power when we come across a conflict, and I'm reluctant, I would be reluctant to put Americans in harm's way where it's not necessary. On the other hand, as I've shown by my own actions, I, I know there are times when it's necessary. And I would, uh, you know, personally, I can only speak personally, right? I mean, I will personally step up to defend this country, and I believe there are times to, when that's necessary. I really, um, I'd resist being being trying to pigeonhole into the uh, sure. the spectrum of I, I of realize hawk uh, dove. hawks and doves are kind of the it, extremes, but uh, you know we all have a sense of, of where we are along that that line. I think where it comes down to is we have we are such a powerful nation in so many ways other than our military force, which is you know we are the most powerful military in the world and need to maintain that quantitative edge. We also have an extremely strong economy. We have extremely uh, effective abilities to use information operations. So many different ways that we can influence world events that we should be turning to before we commit blood and treasure overseas. Talking about uh, keeping that edge, military appropriations is a major function of Congress. Um, we're looking at a $750 billion defense spending, uh, $718 billion of that, uh, specifically DOD. Uh, is that enough? Is that too much? Where are you on uh, the defense spending and, and the kinds of things that we're buying these days? Well, our, our number one asset are our people. We need to spend on people. That means paying our soldiers what they deserve. It means taking care of them afterward as well, making sure they have proper training for transitions to civilian life, dealing with the health, the almost inevitable mental and physical health problems that come up after service. We are spending uh, a lot of money in a lot of inefficient ways. Anyone who's served, I think, has directly seen uh, a lot of the money that's wasted uh, in in service. Just it, uh, the nature of the the budget process. An example I like to give sometimes, and I think this drives the point home, is when I was getting ready to deploy to Iraq, uh, we were nearing the end of the fiscal year, and so the supply sergeant came around and offered everyone a Benchmade automatic. You're, you're laughing because you know this story. <laughs> this has happened. Uh, Offered. 26 years in the Navy, I've it, seen 26 cycles where, exactly. so where that happened. Exactly. So they walked around and offered every, with a box of $250 knives, beautiful knives, and uh, said, take one, take two. We needed to spend our fiscal year money. So uh, I have a knife, I have it with me. And uh, I got to Iraq, and it was time to be issued my 9 mil, my M9, and they had run out. So this is a, you know an example of showing up to a, a gunfight with a knife, and it's just one... <laughs> One small, small example of how it's not that there isn't enough money, it's that we just do not use our money uh, in the right way. We need much, much more careful oversight and auditing of how we spend our money. That's not to say that we shouldn't spend it. We should, but we're spending enough. We don't need to spend more. We need to spend, spend intelligently. The confirmation process, uh, the Senate uh, votes on confirmations for cabinet positions, ambassadors, and others. Do you have any philosophy that you take into the process, knowing that in the past there have been some nominees who were nominated because of their uh, affiliation with campaigns of, of, of this or that president, uh, and they, they may or may not have been qualified? Um, you know, I'm thinking of ambassadors who don't know where the, the country is that they're going to serve or can't speak the language or can't identify anybody in the government, and they're, they're the nominee to be the ambassador. Likewise, with cabinet positions, there are some who are, are appointed because of their campaign relationships. What, what's your philosophy on uh, confirming uh, positions at the highest uh, reaches of government? Well, it's the, it's the Senate's position to give advice and consent, and those are both very important roles, and they're separate and distinct and need to be protected. It's the president's prerogative to nominate the people for those roles. Senators, regardless of party, should be looking very carefully at those nominees, providing their advice, if it's sought, and I would like it to be more often. And then consent doesn't mean you're writing a blank check for the president's nominees. Consent means, with as with any other job, I think, uh, you're part of the hiring committee, you're on the HR team. And if a person isn't qualified for a job, they shouldn't be appointed to that job. By the same token, that's not a process that should become politicized. If the president has appointed a qualified candidate, then that person should be confirmed uh, by the Senate. It, it, it can't become a political process. We need the best people in these jobs, with, whether it's cabinet jobs or diplomatic jobs. I'm someone who believes very strongly that a, that a, 
a well-equipped, well-funded, well-staffed diplomatic corps saves American lives every single day. We need the very best people to be pursuing those jobs in the State Department. Terrific. Uh, again, we're talking with James Mackler. He's a candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for the U.S. Senate uh, next year. This is part of our uh, uh, coverage of uh, campaign 2020. We invite uh, any uh, candidates uh, for office uh, to uh, contact us uh, to talk uh, in our podcast about uh, their positions on international affairs. Uh, just a reminder, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan organization, uh, but we, uh, we strive to bring uh, speakers like uh, Mr. Mackler and, and others uh, to you via our podcast so that you can understand uh, the issues uh, in the world and, and what's happening in the, uh, the electoral process as far as our candidates and their positions. So uh, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and uh, take a tour of planet Earth uh, with uh, James Mackler and uh, uh, see what uh, his positions are on the various challenges that face U.S. foreign policy today. This is the Global Tennessee Podcast. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. Welcome back to the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Pat Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, we have a great uh, podcast for you today. We're with uh, James Mackler, candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for the U.S. Senate. Uh, he's uh, with us here at beautiful Belmont uh, University campus talking about global affairs. Um, we're going to do uh, as much of the world as we can in the time remaining, but that's a lot of stuff. Um, James, let's let's start with uh, strategic relationships. Uh, Russia. What's your when when someone says the U.S. relations with Russia? What what do you think about? Well, I think first of all, Russia is not our friend. Uh, we are in competition with Russia at this point, and Russia has actively, we know without any any question at this point, interfered with U.S. elections. Russia needs to be held to account for its interference with our elections. Our political leaders at the Senate and at every level need to make it abundantly clear uh, that that's not going to be tolerated. And we need to be taking proactive measures in the United States to prevent future election interference. That means that Mitch McConnell should have allowed uh, the a vote on the bill to further protect our voting systems. Uh, and that bill passed by the House on a bipartisan basis, never even got to a vote in the Senate, which would have helped to um, protect us from some of Russia's election interference. Um, likewise, uh, President Putin is not our friend, nor is he a man to be admired. And it troubles me greatly when our president, the leader of the free world, uh, seems so reluctant to call that man out for who he is. The, um, the moves that Russia's made in, in the last decade, uh, invading Georgia and, and the Ukraine, um, annexing Crimea, uh, posing uh, a threat in, in Europe with the uh, violations of the INF Treaty that eventually led a, the U.S. to uh, abandon the INF Treaty. Uh, can you address some of these uh, issues as, as, a, um, as a military service member? You, you probably have seen firsthand uh, what goes into understanding the threats to U.S. interests abroad and and certainly there are threats to NATO allies and, and others who are uh, part of the American interest umbrella. Right. This is, this is a world leader, and I use the word leader not in the, not in the good sense of the word. This is an autocrat with expansionist uh, uh, ambitions who uh, has no regard for the international rule of law. And when you give someone like that an inch, they'll take a mile. And our... Uh, the president, in, in conjunction with the Senate, uh, should be taking direct action to stop these things. And again, it doesn't mean military action necessarily. We have so many ways to influence world events through our, our strong economy. 
uh, and also through our allies. And something that is worth mentioning, and this is going to come up probably in any, uh, any part of the world that we discuss, is we are strongest when we stand side by side with our allies, when they know what they can expect from the United States. Our allies need to know that we will stand by their side as we fight our common enemies, Russia being one of those. We cannot approach Russia from a position of strength when our allies don't know where we stand and when we're constantly threatening the very existence of NATO, uh, which has proven to be one of the greatest sources for peace since World War II. China. Uh, a lot of people have looked at China in the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years as a, uh, a friend rather than a foe. Uh, there are, you know, people have gotten the label panda huggers, and and uh, I think in, in recent years a, a lot of opinions have changed as to China's intent as the military has expanded, as China has uh, exerted uh, influence uh, around the world. What's your view on China? Friend, foe? Uh, competitor? Uh, how would you classify China? Well, I, I think competitor is, is a, a good word to use for China. Uh, they, a com yes, competitor. I, I hesitate to use the word foe, although there are certainly many areas where their, uh, their values and interests diverge sharply from ours. China is one of the worst human rights violators uh, on the globe. Uh, China also is... Um, you know, actively expanding its territory, physically, you know, creating creating new land right. to expand its territory. And, you know, China's outpaced us almost, uh, by, everyone would agree, China's outpaced us in many military areas, in particular in the area of cyber uh, cyber warfare. And uh, it's that's an area I'm very familiar with through my military experience in, in the National Guard, which we didn't really talk very much about. But it's something that is seems to be a threat that's underappreciated. The fact that China can cause tremendous harm to the United States through cyber warfare capabilities. And it, again, it's something that we seem to not fully appreciate, understand, or have a, a way to respond or defend at this point. So we need to treat them as a competitor, but they're certainly uh, a potential adversary at any moment. And uh, again, the idea that um, our president is unwilling to fully criticize China and is so focused on the trade war, which is important, uh, that he seems able and willing to overlook other aspects of this uh, international relationship trouble me. You talked uh, about staying uh, as one with our, our allies, our, our partners, uh, and there's been uh, questions from time to time about the U.S. participation in NATO. I know a lot has been made about the, the NATO partners living up to their financial contributions uh, requirements or, or goals. Uh, but there's also been talk about whether or not the United States would live up to its obligation to uh, defend other NATO allies if, if attacked, the, the Atlantic Charter uh, provisions that attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, do you, how, how would you see our relationship with NATO and other international institutions evolving in, in the coming years? They need to be strengthened. And Right now, they're being weakened. I think it's fair to say that one of the greatest reasons for this, this prolonged period of peace that we've experienced, with obviously significant exceptions in regional areas, but we haven't had another world war, uh, largely because of the NATO alliance and because Russia knew unequivocally that we were going to stand up for our allies if they were attacked. And our foes need to understand that NATO is an absolutely unshakable alliance, that we will stand up for one another. And, and that leads to this stability and certainty, which adds to peace. And it's certainly worth saying that when we have prolonged peace, we also have prolonged economic uh, growth, and that's good for the entire global economy. And what, uh, what role does the Senate have in, in uh, cementing those relationships? I, I mean, obviously, the Senate is responsible for uh, our treaty obligation, for, uh, for accepting treaties. You know, well, the president negotiates the treaties, the Senate confirms them. And we need, again, to assert that role. When the president either um, uh, backs away from a treaty or attempts to engage in an informal relationship, the president needs to be answerable to the Congress so that we've got this whole advice and consent system in place, the checks and balances that we're supposed to have, that will enable us to, to continue to exercise the rule of law. So far, we're breezing through these uh, big hot topics uh, fairly quickly. Maybe we'll uh, get down the, this whole list. I've, um, we uh, we had a uh, have a pretty good list of uh, things to cover and probably nothing 
as important as uh, the existential threats uh, that face uh, the globe and, and uh, among those climate and nuclear weapons. Let's, let's touch on climate first. Uh, the United States has uh, pulled out of the Paris Accord on uh, climate, uh, has sent mixed messages about uh, fossil fuels. Uh, what's, what's your uh, take on what's going on in the world of climate change and U.S. actions and U.S. government action to, uh, to have some impact on what's going on in, in the, the climate debate? You probably know the Department of Defense has uh, labeled climate change as one of the biggest threats to our national security. And I absolutely agree. As the climate continues to change, it creates global instability and resource scarcity. It causes us to have to change and modify and harden our various installations, which is an extremely expensive process. So if, if for no other reason, we should be addressing climate change on that basis. But of course, there are many bigger reasons to be addressing climate change. Climate change represents an existential threat to the planet. And unfortunately, we're in a situation now where many people refuse to even acknowledge the existence of the threat much less attempt to find real solutions. And those who would say that we have to choose between the economy and the environment are really um, creating a false choice. Those are the climate change deniers. Tennessee is a great example of a state with Oak Ridge National Laboratories. Oak Ridge has led the way in so many ways in green energy and in um, renewables and really demonstrates that we have both the, the ingenuity and the initiative to grow jobs, grow our economy, and protect our environment. That's the path that we should be taking. We can't do it when, again, Mitch McConnell refuses to acknowledge the problem, and it's another reason why we need new people in the U.S. Senate. Uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, we had Joe Cernicioni here uh, as a, a guest speaker at our Global Town Hall in February and, and on our podcast, and, and our listeners can find the uh, podcast interview we did with uh, Mr. Cernicioni. Uh, he's the president of the Plowshares Fund, which is probably the leading organization to bring attention to nuclear weapons issues around the world. And and he reminded us that the doomsday clock set by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is uh, fixed at two minutes to midnight, which is its worst position since the 50s and the explosion of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, and he talked about uh, a new arms race, uh, not just uh, among competitors, but also U.S. nuclear modernization programs. Um, what what are your concerns uh, in the realm of nuclear weapons proliferation among the, the major powers, also among regional actors, and uh, what, what are your views as far as U.S. nuclear modernization? Do we need a triad? Do we need something different? Do we need to spend what would be a trillion dollars over 10, 15 years of nuclear modernization? You know, it, first of all, it surprises me that for some reason folks seem to have forgotten uh, the threat that nuclear weapons cause to the globe. I, I remember not that long ago when we were all acutely aware of the fact that this planet could be destroyed many, many, many times over by our existing stockpiles of nuclear weapons. And for whatever reason, that's not something that's discussed very, more, very much anymore. And in fact, as you know, the president seems to be in a hurry to withdraw from uh, nuclear treaties, most recently the Intermediate, uh, intermediate Range Nuclear Weapons Treaty. And, you know, that, that, so we need to start from the position that these, these weapons pose an existential threat to the, the world, as you've mentioned. They also have an incredibly effective deterrent effect, so we're, we're not going to do away with them. Um, the nuclear triad has served us ever since the Cold, you know, throughout the Cold War. It's proven to be a good way to maintain nuclear deterrence, and we need to be simultaneously requiring our allies to live up to their treaty obligations. The, the example of us withdrawing from the INF is another example of how we've failed to work with our allies to, to strategically address global threats. Russia was violating that agreement, without a doubt. We should have worked with our allies to apply increased pressure on Russia to get them back into compliance with that agreement, rather than withdrawing from the agreement ourselves. I think many people would argue that Putin is happier now that he can develop his weapons out in the open with us having withdrawn from the agreement than if we had applied more pressure to him and forced him to comply with the agreement. Okay, uh, let's see if we can get through uh, regional issues. This this is probably going to be the lightning round here, so if, uh, we can touch first on Middle East. And uh, trying to do a lightning round in the Middle East is certainly a challenge, but uh, let's have at it. Uh, the peace process, uh, U.S. Uh, role in the two-state solution, the Israel-Palestine uh, decades, generations-old uh, uh, issues. 
<laughs> not dealt with in a lightning round very well. Right. Uh, I, I certainly. <laughs> Apologies for the brevity, but no, no, uh, no. I, I'm, I think it's good to say that we should start with the fact that we need a two-state solution when we talk about Israel. That should be the goal. Uh, unfortunately, increasingly, the United States has lost its role as a neutral arbiter of peace. We've very clearly taken sides in this, uh, this, the dispute, and um, we can have such an important role in trying to resolve this. Now, let me say, I just recently returned from Israel, and being there on the ground really drives home how incredibly complex the situation is. And anyone who claims to have uh, an easy solution to achieving peace in the Middle East is, is misinformed or lying, and I certainly don't claim to. We need to come at this knowing that it is an extraordinarily complex problem and be willing to work with everyone across the aisle, across the globe, without regard to who's get, who gets credit or blame, and really work to achieve some lasting peace that's going to have to include a two-state solution. Any thoughts on how the U.S. can restore its role as uh, an arbiter uh, between the parties? Because it does seem to have been damaged. It's going to take time. You know, relationship building takes a long time. It's very easy to destroy a relationship. Uh, again, it's going to require calling on our allies, and I think it's going to require a change in leadership as well. The Iran nuclear deal and the Iranian-U.S. Uh, confrontation in the Gulf. Well, two separate, separate but related issues. Right. You know, we're, we're no longer in the Iran nuclear deal, so now the question becomes, how do we best contain Iran's nuclear ambitions? How do we make sure that they uh, can't continue to sponsor terrorism? How do we check their ballistic missile program? Uh, Iran is an incredibly uh, destabilizing force in the Middle East right now. We haven't helped the situation uh, by, again, abandoning our allies. We unilaterally withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal uh, rather than working with our allies either to withdraw together or to apply increased force. And now we're in this position where many of our European allies are in direct conflict with us as we approach um, either getting back into or modifying the deal. It's, a, it's a, not a good position to be in, to be negotiating from a position of weakness on your own. The Obama administration sought uh, dialogue and the Trump administration as a policy of maximum pressure. Where, where are you on either of those? There's a place for maximum pressure. Maximum pressure means a global community applying maximum pressure. It doesn't mean America first applying national pressure. That's where we keep falling down, is we keep taking this approach that says we can do it, we can do it by ourselves, we're better than everyone else, and we can solve this problem. The president manufactures uh, crises, he sows chaos, and then he says he alone can fix it. That's not how you solve issues in global affairs. Now, the uh, current situation in the Gulf, where we sent a carrier uh, in a hurry there after a certain uh, unidentified threats appeared. Uh, there's been attacks on tankers. Iran has seized a British tanker. Uh, the British seized an Iranian tanker, which has since been released. So uh, the Strait of Hormuz is uh, once again in the in the news as a place of confrontation. Talk about uh, maritime escorts among the U.S. and allies, and as as you've talked about the uh, the problem with our allies being on the same sheet of music with the U.S. Some of them are reluctant to uh, engage with the U.S. maritime convoy system. So um, it's, it's a mess again. It, it's, it's a mess, and you're, you're exactly right. That's what I was thinking about in terms of not having our allies you know, side by side with us, is we don't even know who's going to engage in these convoy protection missions anymore. And this is a, fla a potential flashpoint for sure. We have to protect shipping traffic through the Strait of Hormuz. If we have to do it on our own, we should do it on our own, but we shouldn't be in a position where we have to. We'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing what happens in, in the Gulf. It's certainly uh, a place where there's plenty of surprises and opportunities for disaster there. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Syria, um, what's, your, what's your take on uh, the U.S. role in Syria? We've had combat forces on the ground there. Uh, we've uh, influenced uh, the, uh, the outcome to some extent in terms of the uh, uh, caliphate uh, maintained by ISIS in Syria, uh, but there's still a lot of problems. The Syrian uh, government is, is uh, pressing against uh, the Kurds, who are our allies. The Turks have them squeezed in. The Russians are a player. Um, a, another mess. What, it's, uh, it's yet another humanitarian disaster that's not and, getting— And the humanitarian issue, for right, sure. Right. It's not getting nearly enough attention. It's not, any, it's, it's, it's not something where there's an easy solution. Uh, on the other hand, you know, sticking our head in the sand, saying, for example, that ISIS has been defeated, does not get us any 
closer to a solution. Likewise, refusing to work with our allies doesn't get us any closer to a solution. Ignoring the problem, ignoring the humanitarian disaster only makes matters worse. You know, when we fail to fulfill our role as a global leader, other powers fill that vacuum, whether it's Russia in this case, uh, China in other cases. We're ceding leadership throughout the globe, and that's leading to these increased humanitarian and military crises throughout the world. Saudi Arabia, the United States has a very strong relationship with Saudi Arabia. They're currently involved in combat in, in Yemen, which has been roundly criticized as a humanitarian issue. They're also uh, alongside the United States and trying to put pressure on Iran, uh, and they've got a role in Syria to some extent. Uh, we, uh, we have an issue with the leadership there. The, uh, the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, is uh, connected to uh, charges of uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in, uh, in Istanbul a year and a half ago. Uh, what's your view on the U.S. relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia and the uh, the leaders of Saudi Arabia? Mohammed bin Salman is a young guy. His father is uh, is quite old, so we could wind up with King Mohammed bin Salman for 40 or 50 years. We could, and if the kingdom wants the benefit of an alliance with the United States, they need to behave as uh, responsible members of the global community. They need us a lot more than we need them. It is incumbent upon us to say clearly to the Saudis, we condemn the assassination of uh, journalists as one example, and you, you need to get in line, you need to be accountable for these things, or you lose some or all of our military assistance. I believe that um, we are in a position of strength in that relationship, and we should assert our leadership in that regard. Mohammed bin Salman, as, as ruler of uh, Saudi Arabia, if he's connected with this uh, this murder of the journalist, uh, any, any thoughts on uh, the relationship that we could have with the leader of, of the country in that, that regard? Well, it may be necessary to maintain some strategic relationship with the leader uh, despite um, that kind of horrific action, but it can't go unaddressed entirely. Okay. Uh, shifting halfway around the world, Asia, North Korea, nuclear proliferation, the threat on the peninsula. Uh, what uh, you know, we we've seen uh, President Trump open dialogue directly with the leader of North Korea. Uh, he's met uh, uh, Chairman Kim uh, several times. Uh, still, not much progress on denuclearization in the peninsula, uh, despite uh, the love letters that uh, the presidents receive. What what's your take on, on where we are there? The United States diplomatic presence role or lack of role in Asia may be our biggest failure at this point. Uh, the um, situation in Asia in almost every major player in Asia has gotten worse over the past several years. And you've alluded to some of these things, and we can only touch on a few of them. But the fact that the president uh, declares that he's in love with perhaps the most vicious dictator in the world uh, in North Korea and refuses to condemn North Korea, engages in this back and forth of at one moment we're going to apply maximum pressure, at, at another moment things are all good, uh, provides a level of inconsistency that the North Koreans take advantage of. Uh, we see other important trade relationships coming apart. South Korea no longer lists Japan as a key trading partner, as a preferred trading partner. That also puts uh, the intelligence gathering relationship between Japan and South Korea at risk, which hurts our ability to respond to North Korea. China continues to expand, it's literally expand its territory in the South China Sea. Uh, China engages, continues to surpass us in, as I mentioned, in cyber warfare capabilities. Kashmir is coming apart at the seams. The United States has uh, the ability through our strategic relationships and our alliances, our economic power, to influence all of these things. And instead, we sit back, we take this America first approach, we allow everything to come apart, which creates global instability, endangers American troops, and weakens the global economy at the very same time when the president is trying uh, to, to prop it back up. You, uh, you uh, covered Kashmir a, a little bit in mentioning the instability there, but I also wanted to talk about South Asia and, and some of the issues there. Uh, situations like Myanmar and, and others around the world where there's uh, ethnic cleansing or, uh, or genocide, uh, when and where and in what capacity should the United States get involved in situations like the uh, Rohingya Muslims being uh, pushed out of their homeland? We should always get involved. Now, the way we get involved, the level of involvement uh, may vary depending on the situation and depending on the degree to which it affects our direct national security. But we can never ignore these things either. We have the ability to shape events all across the globe. That's one of the incredible things about 
you know, the United States is we, we have the ability to do so much more than sometimes we're doing. So we, we can always get involved. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily military might. I mean diplomacy. I mean economic pressure. I mean simply the use of information operations. And uh, we don't do any, we can never ignore these things, but it doesn't mean that it's always a military response. You seem to uh, indicate that the U.S. should be involved uh, in, in some capacity in international requirements. And one of those is uh, that we've been involved in the past and, and may have uh, the need to get involved in, again, in Africa, the Ebola virus. Um, would you uh, support U.S. involvement in, uh, as, as we did during the Obama administration of uh, becoming fully engaged in, in helping tamp that down? I absolutely would. I mean, we live in a global community. Uh, the Ebola virus is perhaps one of the very best examples of a threat that isn't going to obey international boundaries and has the ability to destabilize the continent, if not, if not the globe. And we have the ability through our expertise in logistics and transportation, not to mention our medical expertise, to make a real difference there, and we should be. Skipping to another continent at uh, the, the drop of a hat here. Sorry, we don't have more time to get uh, deeper into uh, issues. Uh, Africa is a complex place, and, and many conversations can be had there. But let's let's take a look at South America, and, and in particular Venezuela. Um, we're uh, sort of at a standstill in the transition from the Maduro government, which the United States says is no longer uh, legitimate. Uh, what do you think uh, of the situation in Venezuela? I think Venezuela shows us, and I hate to keep coming back to this, another example of a global crisis of a humanitarian disaster. I think 25% of the Venezuelan people have already are, are now refugees from their own country. That destabilizes the region, and it's another example of a place where we're at odds with some of our allies uh, in, in how to address this problem. We can't address it from a position of strength when we don't have a, a global community around us. It's, it's a very, very difficult problem that's going to require a combined approach, and we're not taking those kind of approaches to hardly any problems anymore. Brexit in Europe, the uh, future of U.S.-EU relations, the future of the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, October 31st is the deadline for a Brexit deal, no deal. It, it's apparent that uh, the new prime minister of the U.K., Boris Johnson, is going to go ahead with uh, Brexit, and it looks like he's pushing towards uh, a no-deal situation. What are your thoughts on what that means for U.S. relations with the United Kingdom and with the EU? The United States is going to need to maintain its special relationship with uh, the U.K. regardless of what they decide to do with Brexit. And it's going to be up to us to figure out how to respond to whatever situation, you know, winds up in... Uh, so we'll be looking at new trade agreements? Uh, we're going to be... We're, uh, probably. Uh, yeah. We're probably going to be looking at negotiating new trade agreements and dealing with a new economic order in a to a large degree. That's, that's their domestic issue to figure out. I'm, I'm concerned, to the, for one thing, to the extent that that reflects this sort of emerging nationalistic threat to democracies all across the globe. I mean, Brexit is not purely an economic issue. Right. Uh, it, it seems to be, to some extent, a cultural issue and a nationalistic issue. And I worry sometimes about how that's reflected in the United States and how America first uh, really doesn't serve our interest when it's um, seen as an isolationist perspective or when it's seen as even a white nationalist perspective by some people. And so uh, I, I'm worried about that aspect of it. Well, you're right that it is uh, tearing the fabric of, of Europe uh, across the continent and uh, should be of concern to us. Um, we talked, uh, you, you touched a little bit about trade agreements relative to the United Kingdom. Uh, let's uh, enlarge the uh, the field of view. Uh, trade agreements around the world. We had the TPP that we were close to uh, uh, bringing to uh, final closure and the 2016 election. That seemed to be a, uh, a football that everybody liked to kick around. Even uh, Hillary Clinton had to uh, take the position that she was against the TPP because it had become such a, a uh, lightning rod. And now, in retrospect, a lot of people are saying, hey, this this would have been a good deal to uh, to hedge in China as we're, uh, we're now in a full-blown trade war with China. Uh, we also uh, renegotiated the NAFTA agreement. Uh, tell us a little bit about your philosophy about uh, free trade, international trade agreements, World Trade Organization, how uh, Tennessee uh, in particular benefits uh, from uh, from free trade, foreign direct investment, the uh, the economic side uh, of uh, international commerce. Yeah, well, I mean, 
we live in a global economy, and Tennessee is a very important component of that global economy. I also believe that Tennessee workers in particular, and American workers in general, can outproduce in terms of, uh, of quality product, can outproduce any nation in the world if allowed to compete on a level playing field. To the extent that we participate in international trade agreements, they have to allow us to compete on a level playing field. And as long as we have labor at the table, along with all the other economic interests, to make sure that our workers are not disadvantaged by agreements, then I think we need to continue to play a role in the global community. There's not really an, an alternative uh, for Tennessee or for any state in the United States anymore. Just reminding everyone, we're with uh, James Mackler, a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the United States Senate in 2020. We've been talking uh, about uh, regional issues, global uh, strategic issues, and his background uh, as an attorney and as a, a member of the U.S. military in, in combat in Iraq. And now we're uh, closing this out with, uh, with our last question. James, where do you see America in the world? The United States can and should be a global leader. And when we fail to exercise a leadership role, other nations that don't share our values fill that vacuum, nations like Russia and China, for example. I want to see the United States regain its standing in the world as, a, as an economic leader and as a moral leader that's pursuing our values in a smart way in conjunction with our allies as a beacon of hope and, and an example of both economic and personal freedom. We can be the, all of those things uh, without creating the, we don't need to be isolationist and we shouldn't be. Uh, we need to be playing a role in the global community if for no other reason than to make sure that our allies don't play that leadership role. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for your time today. We appreciated having this conversation. Again, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast uh, from the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And a reminder, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is uh, a nonpartisan organization, but we're anxious to present the views and perspectives of candidates for federal office because they're going to be making decisions that affect American national security and prosperity, and it's important that citizens understand what their points of view are. So we invite other candidates uh, who are are, uh, uh, throwing their hat in the ring for the upcoming uh, elections to uh, contact the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and we will look forward to uh, talking with you on the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, that's it for today. I'm Patrick Ryan, president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thank you for listening, and please tell your friends about the Global Tennessee Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Patrick. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org slash podcast for more information.